From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Jai. And I'm Tracy McRae. With more than 50,000 deaths every year, colon cancer is the second leading cause of cancer death for both men and women in the U.S. And March is Colon Cancer Awareness Month. And a new Twitter campaign called Hashtag Strong Arm Selfie is now underway to spotlight screening and finding a cure. Mayo Clinic gastroenterologist Dr. Paul Lindbergh joins us to explain why the best test for colon cancer is actually the one that gets done. Also on the program, traumatic brain injury doesn't just happen to football and hockey players. Older adults are at risk as well. And we'll talk about when to consider palliative care. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. You know, for decades, health care providers have been trying to convince more people to get screened for cancer of the colon and rectum. Colorectal cancer remains the second leading cause of cancer-related death among both men and women in the U.S., But there is little doubt that regular screening could change that for the better. And did you know, Tom, that March is Colon Cancer Awareness Month? I did. Yeah, part of that effort is to spotlight the importance of testing. Mayo Clinic is joining with an organization called Fight Colorectal Cancer in a Twitter campaign called the Strong Arm Selfie. Take a selfie in your best strong arm pose. Let's see yours, (laughs) because we're going to take a photo right after this show is over. (laughs) And then what you do is you tweet it to hashtag strong arm selfie. And then go to the fightcolorectalcancer.org website where you'll find a short video of our guest. He's Mayo Clinic gastroenterologist Dr. Paul Lindbergh. Dr. Lindbergh is telling his patients that the best test for colon cancer screening is... The test that actually gets done. <laughs> That's important. Yeah, welcome to the program, Dr. Lindbergh. Good to have you with Thanks, us. Thanks, Tracy. Thanks, Tom. Nice to be here. So what does that statement mean? The best test is the one that gets done. Well, I think with colon cancer screening, uh, there are more options than there are for some other uh, screenings like breast cancer, for example. And um, oftentimes we get into conversations about, well, should we do this test or that test? Is it right for me? Is it right for my physician? And I think it's really a personal decision. And so of all of the available options, choosing one that works for you and your care team is the way to get the best result from colon cancer screening. So I would assume that colonoscopy is still the gold standard, but there is a new test available, and that's probably the most exciting news in terms of colon cancer, isn't it? Yeah, we haven't had um, a lot of experience with Cologuard yet, but it is the, the newest uh, colorectal cancer screening test that has been approved for clinical use. Um, it is a stool-based test. It looks actually for components of sloughed uh, pre cancerous or even cancerous cells. It also has a blood detection component. So um, there are multiple different uh, biomarkers, if you will, that are measured by the Cologuard assay, and those are then um, predictive as to whether or not there might be something that warrants further assessment with a diagnostic test like colonoscopy. But I have heard that in terms of diagnosing colon cancer, it's just as good as a colonoscopy. Is that a fair statement? Um, I, I think it is in, in, in most ways. You know, th- every test has its strengths and its limitations, even colonoscopy. Um, some studies have shown can can miss polyps and can even miss cancers. It doesn't do that very often, but that is a possibility. So I think all of the different tests have different um, um, advantages, disadvantages. They can find maybe subtle flatter lesions with one test versus more of the 
polyp-shaped lesions with another test. So I think, again, it's a detailed conversation that an individual needs to have with their clinician to pick out which of the different options will work best for them. And there are some different things to remember, too. So um, colon cancer screening works best when it's performed over, you know, the period of time that an individual is at risk for colon cancer, which is typically for the most members of the general population age 50 and on. Um, so the the intervals between screening and the costs associated with an individual test um, sometimes can vary, but what you want to look at is really that effectiveness over a lifetime and then cost over a lifetime to be able to compare them uh, with respect to those different features. No test is perfect, but and Cologuard has a short history, but we probably know that it's better than nothing. Absolutely. Uh, with breast cancer, you know, a woman maybe will feel a lump, uh, go get a mammogram, and that cancer is detected. How do you find colon cancer? Yeah, colon cancer um, is is really shouldn't be defined as the target for what we're trying to locate with screening. We should be looking for the precancerous lesions. Um, those are most often asymptomatic. So colon polyps really don't produce much in the way of pain or discomfort or things like that, at least in the typical scenario. Occasionally they will bleed, um, but you can find small colon polyps much much earlier than when they might break a blood vessel or cause any sort of symptoms or signs by doing true screening tests where we're just um, bringing individuals in based on their uh, age or other uh, clinical parameters to, to have a test when they really aren't expressing any any symptoms. So that's the beauty of colonoscopy. If you see the polyp, you take it out. And it's almost all colon cancers developed from a polyp that it was at one time benign and then turned cancerous? Yep, that's the current understanding. Um, we've, I think, over the last few years recognized that there are some different subtypes of precancerous polyps, and those might have a little bit different biology or time frame from when they develop to when they might become a cancer. Uh, but in general, I think the, the uh, 90 plus percent of colon cancers are thought to develop from polyps. And is it also a true statement that 90 percent of colon cancers are preventable? Yep, that's true too. If you get the test and get that precancerous polyp out of there, you're not going to get cancer. Exactly. What about symptoms? We talked about those, but if you do develop symptoms, let's say it's uh, bloating or bleeding, is it too late? Uh, it's, it's never too late. Um, colon cancers, like with many cancers, are more treatable, more curable the earlier that they're caught, but it's never too late to do something. Screening is the key then. So uh, this strong arm selfie that we're going to listen to that song here in just a moment, the key behind that is to get people thinking about I don't have any symptoms, but I need to go get my screening done or maybe set up a baseline. Um, is that the key to fighting the war against colon cancer? It's, it's one key for sure. So um, this may not come as a shock to you, but it's hard for people to talk about colon cancer sometimes and to talk about colon cancer screening. So raising awareness, making sure that people know that they should be screened even if they don't have symptoms and how effective screening can be. Those are some of the different elements that go into campaigns like the Strong Arm Selfie campaign. Well, wasn't it Katie Couric who had her screening test done on live television? So She was know. the first of a few that have done that now. And it was her husband who died of colon cancer, That's right. correct? We're talking with Dr. Paul Lindbergh about colorectal cancer screening and treatment and the Strong Arm Selfie campaign to raise colon cancer awareness. Here to help us into this break is country music star Craig Campbell. Campbell is Fight Colorectal Cancer's national spokesman and he's written this song called Stronger Than That. Here's a bit of it. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. There's a million of me and only one of you. So 
Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shai. And I'm Tracy McRae. Now, that was some of Stronger Than That by country music star Craig Campbell. Campbell is national spokesman for the Fight Colorectal Cancer Organization. And, of course, it is Colon Cancer Awareness Month. We are here with Mayo Clinic gastroenterologist Dr. Paul Lindbergh. Dr. Lindbergh, uh, Craig Campbell, how was he touched by colon cancer? So Craig Campbell, um, I've had a, the pleasure of working with over the last year uh, in my role as being on the advisory board for Fight Colorectal Cancer, and he's just a wonderful person. Um, he has told his personal story, which is that his father died of colon cancer at a relatively young age, and because of that, um, he wanted to make sure that that uh, uh, situation happened as infrequently as possible to anyone else. So he has dedicated his time and talent to making sure that colorectal cancer is part of a, a media campaign and uh, our everyday lives. I would suspect that it's that he hopes, as you, do you, that the Strong Arm Selfie campaign is as successful as that ice bucket challenge was last summer for ALS. Yeah, I think we have a ways to go maybe, but that would be a good goal. <laughs> but that did, you know, the, in that way, that helped people even know what ALS was to begin with, let alone donate money to help find a cure. It's the same thing. You said people are not that excited about talking about colon cancer. They probably know what a colon is, but this will maybe get it a little bit easier for people to talk about. I think so. We've we've talked about some taboo tumors, if you will, in the past, and colon cancer is one on that list where it's just a hard conversation to have even with your closest family members. So the more we can let people know that colon cancer is preventable, colon cancer screening is effective, so much the better. So let's talk about uh, screening and uh, let's first review the tests that are available. We've talked about colonoscopy. We've talked about Cologuard. Are those the two, or are there other ways you can be screened for this disease? Those are two of the, the more common tests. I think Cologuard is still finding its place because it's relatively new. Um, there are uh, additional stool tests. The test that's been around the longest is a fecal occult blood test, and there are newer uh, versions of that called fecal immunochemical tests. Um, that's a fairly simple, straightforward test, uh, oftentimes in primary care practices. That's the, the colon cancer screening modality that might be selected most often. And now that's the one where they do a rectal, a rectal exam and then just take a small sample and put it on the slide or whatever they do with it. Well, and actually that's that's how it's sometimes done, but it should not be performed that way. So it should be um, a, a series of stool samples collected by the individual and, and placed onto the card, but not from a rectal exam performed in the office. That's not an adequate way to have a complete colon cancer screening exam. Uh-huh. But, well, but we're learning something. That's yeah. why. We're here. Yep. So stool tests looking for blood would be one general classification. Stool tests looking for blood and additional markers would be the Cologuard test. Flexible sigmoidoscopy is an endoscopy or a scope-based test that sees the lower half of the colon and rectum, doesn't see the upper part of the colon. 
Um, there are x-ray tests, CT colonography uh, or virtual colonoscopy is still an available and acceptable uh, colon cancer screening test. And then colonoscopy uh, would be uh, an endoscopy-based test that sees the entire colon and rectum. So let's start with the, the guidelines for being screened. You've got all of those different options. And let's start with Greg Campbell. He has a family history of colon cancer. So should he start screening prior to someone who doesn't have a family history? Yes. So um, the recommendations for screening earlier, younger than the general population, would include family history, and the exact uh, age to start depends on your family history, whether or not it meets criteria for some heritable cancer syndromes. So that's a little bit more of a complicated scenario based on um, the patterns in your own kindred. Um, things like inflammatory bowel disease, also called Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, those would be indications for screening at a younger age. Um, there are some other uh, situations where you might think about it. For example, African Americans are thought to develop colon cancers at a younger age. Um, people with diabetes mellitus may also be at increased risk, so there are at least some suggestions that screening should start at a younger age and for those individuals. People with diabetes. Young, yeah, wow. what's a younger age? Yeah, um, so there's... there's Got to pin you down. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so starting at age 40 uh, or starting at age starting at age 40 with a family history that does not meet criteria for heritable cancer syndromes is a general guideline. Um, African Americans starting at about age 45 and using a test that evaluates in, uh, the entire colon, including the upper part of the colon, a test like colonoscopy, uh, those would be the, the ages to start at. And if you don't have any of those risks that you just uh, went through, then is it 50? Yeah. Okay. So if you're Caucasian and no family history, age 50. Right. All right, and then how frequently thereafter? Depends on the test uh, that you choose. So for some of the stool tests, um, it can be anywhere from one to three years. Um, for colonoscopy, it can be up to 10 years if the findings are normal. So let's talk about treatment. Uh, if you find a polyp, you certainly want to remove that. So you remove all polyps, right? You can't look at it and say, ah, oh, that one's okay. We'll leave that one in there. You take a polyp out if you see it. That's right. If you do it through the, the colonoscope. Um, then if you develop a cancer of the colon and it is localized to the colon and hasn't spread anywhere else, surgery the treatment? Yes. And if you can remove it, uh, that's perfect. That's uh, The cure rate's pretty high, right? Yep. The cure rate is higher. Um, for, for localized colon cancers, the cure rate is extremely high. So obviously uh, the problem is for the patient whose cancer has been caught later so that it's already spread somewhere. If it has spread somewhere, where does it normally go and what treatment options do we have? Yeah, so the first place that we think colon and rectal cancers would go is to the lymph nodes, and so those are always assessed at the time of surgical resection to see if there's any lymph node involvement. Um, other common locations would be the liver and sometimes the lungs, particularly with rectal cancers. So the lymph nodes are the ones that are adjacent to the, the colon. They're down in the belly also. Right. And if it has spread there, you remove those? Yeah, those those typically would just come out with the surgical resection specimen. All right, so you're still potentially cured if it's only gone to the lymph nodes. What about if it's gone to the liver or elsewhere? Yep, and, and I will say, Tom, that there is always um, a, a cure rate with any of these different stages of colon cancer. The cure rate, you know, goes, goes down um, the more advanced the stage is. Even if it's in the liver, not necessarily good night, Irene. That's right. So 
so um, we we've uh, over the last boy uh, decade or maybe even longer we've recognized that doing uh, surgical removal or other treatments for colon cancer metastases to the liver is effective so combined procedures where you take out the quote primary tumor in the colon and even some of these areas of metastases or cancer spread uh, can be very effective can be curable Chemotherapy, an option for, for many of these patients, and is it difficult chemo? Uh, chemotherapy is an option. Um, it would be, it would depend on the stage of the tumor, um, and it is better tolerated now than it was in, in the past. Is radiation used? Radiation can be used for rectal cancers, uh, primarily for colon cancers, it's not typically used. So if the cancer is localized uh, and can be removed, completely removed surgically, there's no lymph node involvement, what's the cure rate? Uh, the cure rate would be, again, depending on exactly the, the precise staging at the time of pathology assessment, uh, can be upwards of 90%. All right. And if it has already spread, let's say, to the liver at the time of diagnosis, then what's the cure rate approximately? That, that's a harder question because I think it depends more on the histologic features. And so there can be you know, wide variation across and it depends on numbers of, of lesions in the liver, et cetera. In, in you know, uh, an advanced stage four colon cancer situation, survi- uh, uh, five-year survival rates may be in the range of 10%. Yeah, so it's way down. Yeah. I mean, and, and this is a potentially curable cancer and preventable cancer. But as you've pointed out, huge difference between catching it early, and catching it after it's already spread. Right. So, Dr. Lindbergh, from the very first time that I've met you, I don't even know how many years ago it's been now, you do such a great job trying to convince people to go in and get that screening done or to go get their colon cancer screening done. Do you feel like you're making any headway? When you go to bed at night, do you feel like I'm actually starting to see a light at the end of the tunnel? I, I think so. And um, it, it is through the dedicated efforts from, you know, people like yourselves and groups like Fight Colorectal Cancer and, and many, many, many others. But um, I think we are making progress. We look at the national colon cancer screening rates and they continue to tick up, albeit too slowly. Um, there is a campaign that the American Cancer Society is currently promoting called 80% by 2018. And the goal there is to get 80% of the screen eligible population, people who should be screened, to have uh, one of the accepted colon cancer screening tests. So you got a lot of selfies, don't you, so far already? <laughs> Lots of selfies. We need to take our selfie now that we're done here. Is that okay when Absolutely. you do that with us? sure. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Lindbergh, for bringing us up to date on the treatment and prevention of colorectal cancer. Thanks for being here, Dr. Lindbergh. My pleasure. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, traumatic brain injury. It doesn't just happen to football and hockey players. Older adults are, in fact, one of the largest groups who are at risk. And palliative care, what it is and when it's the right choice. Do you have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover you can tweet us anytime at hashtag mayo clinic radio or send us an email at mayo clinic radio at mayo.edu coming up the latest health and medical news with vivian williams you're listening to mayo clinic radio on the mayo clinic news network Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with headlines from the Mayo Clinic News Network. What wouldn't you give for a good night's sleep, right? But lots of us have insomnia. Well, research published in Frontiers in Human Neuroscience shows there may not be a complete cure for insomnia, but a peek at your brain waves may help figure out who's at risk. Experts study how stress affects sleep, and they found not everyone is equipped to handle it the same way. Stress affects your brain, which impacts sleep, and they hope this info sheds more light on insomnia.
And in other news, coconut oil seems to be one of the latest health fads. It's used in just about everything these days, and it may not be as bad for you as once thought. While it's high in saturated fat, it may be one of those foods that does not raise cholesterol. Here's Dr. Donald Hensrud. It's not a magic potion. Uh, I think it may deserve a place in the diet, but we need to study this more. Now let's move on to a supplement lots of people should take, vitamin D. It's key to helping your body absorb calcium. New research in the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology shows too little and too much vitamin D is associated with an increased risk of death from cardiovascular issues. Mayo Clinic endocrinologist Dr. Daniel Hurley says there's no need to get worked up about that particular study. He says the real issue is that many people don't get enough vitamin D. You can get it from the sun, but sunscreen blocks it and cold weather drives people inside. So, supplements can be important. He recommends people take 1,000 units a day. The Institutes of Medicine reports that 600 to 4,000 units a day are safe. And talk to your doctor or health care provider about the amount of vitamin D that's right for you. And that's a look at headlines from the Mayo Clinic News Network. I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Schott. And I'm Tracy McRae. Traumatic brain injury. It's a term that we hear a lot about lately, often in connection with contact sports like football and hockey. Players suffering concussions and may show signs of memory loss, mood changes, even depression and anxiety. But isn't just athletes who suffer from traumatic brain injury. Older adults who fall make up a large group of people with brain injury. As do people who have been in automobile accidents. Ah. So there are all sorts of different ways that you can injure your brain. And here to talk about traumatic brain injury, what it is, how it's treated, and how it can be prevented is Dr. Alan Brown. He is a specialist in physical medicine and rehabilitation at Mayo Clinic. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Brown. Thank you very much, Tracy. You know, one of the most common age groups that suffers from head injury is the older age group, right? Yes, the elderly people that fall uh, make up the the largest uh, percentage. It's the most common way people overall injure their brains. And it does take some uh, force to actually have the brain sort of collide with the inside of the skull and cause significant impairment, significant damage. And as people age, they increase risk for these falls for for many reasons. Their walking becomes more unstable for many reasons. They uh, Their balance is, is poor. Sometimes they're taking a lot of medicines, and we really see this a lot. They're also taking medicines that can affect how their blood clots, and, and that certainly can lead to some significant problems with bleeding within the brain. Oh, okay. So they they injure their brain and then it bleeds and right. that further complicates the problem? Indeed. And that can become, of course, uh, life-threatening and requires immediate you know, medical attention. A couple of the risk factors that you mentioned were obviously age, but another was medications. Are there particular medications that you worry about? All kinds of medications sometimes, certainly uh, as they mix, can can give mm-hmm. problems with uh, dizziness and, and lightheadedness um, and problems with balance uh, and even awareness. Um, some heart medicines can do that, certain medicines for mood and, and for sleep, things like that. And, and it's just uh, important for everyone to be aware of the medicines they're taking. And if they don't need to take all of them, their primary physician should take a close look at them and see if, if some may not be needed. 
being that it is Brain Injury Awareness Month, I think probably what people are most aware of, and probably, you know, to a good point, the a lot of the soldiers that are returning from war are, were, are being diagnosed with traumatic brain injuries. And then we mentioned at the beginning of the program the athletes that are noticing it, you know, retiring earlier from the NFL and um, hockey players. Younger people having traumatic brain injuries, is, is that on the increase or are we just becoming more aware of it? Those statistics are a little bit difficult to get, uh, and it is true that people are much more aware now of concussive injury than they ever have been before, and that's nothing but good. There's no doubt about it. The, the, the direct connection uh, between a concussive traumatic brain injury and long-term problems with neurologic disease, degenerative um, cognitive problems, thinking problems, things like that, that really that connection hasn't been made the, the, yet. Um, there's lots of, of research going on right now to, to try to make those connections. What we do know now with good certainty is that the more times you injure your brain, your risk for developing problems down the line increases. But we can't determine that for any individual at any time. But you think there's definitely a relationship between neurologic disorders that come on later in life and multiple concussions during sport or whatever? Um, there, there isn't for everyone. There are many people that have had many, many concussive injuries and have no um, changes in their lifespan, have no changes in their, the diseases that they develop down the line. So there's no clear connection for everyone. But just like, you know, many people, you know, smoke their entire lives and don't get lung cancer, but boy, their risk is through the roof. Uh, similarly, uh, if uh, the fewer brain injuries that you have over time, the less risk you have for developing degenerative neurologic disease related to those concussions. Is it just dementia or there are other abnormalities that it can lead to? There are is sort of a syndrome that is sort of based on autopsy. You know, after people die, they look at their brains and they look significantly abnormal. It's a con condition called chronic traumatic encephalopathy that is associated with not just problems with thinking, but also some emotional problems. And so, you know, there is some connection that's been drawn between repeated injury and that kind of clinical situation, but you can't predict that with any certainty within an individual. I think that's important because the samples are just, they're small and biased, if you will. They're of a specific group. There's no studies that look over an entire population and assess that risk. And we're actually look, looking into that at Mayo Clinic. Are there symptoms of different traumatic brain injury in children that have concussions, you know, during sports or just playing um, versus in adults? Are, are those symptoms different? Well, our practice in brain rehabilitation at Mayo Clinic really looks at traumatic brain injury sort of overall. Um, there are many mechanisms for injury, and we essentially approach them like we approach all kinds of medical problems of this kind. We evaluate an individual, we assess their risks uh, as an individual, and we help treat their problems as an individual. It, it is important to know the mechanism of injury, how this happened, but ultimately we rely on what an individual, their symptoms and their individual circumstances, what risks they have for another occurrence of traumatic brain injury and do everything we can to minimize those risks. So let's talk about prevention and, and we'll start with the older individual. I assume most of these falls occur at home. So what can people do to, to avoid falls at home and brain injury? Great question. For example, in the elderly, their environment is a very important to really take a close look at. Um, do they have things that they can trip over, uh, furniture and rugs and, and things like that? Getting into the home, are there a lot, lot of stairs? After they enter the home, do they have to go up, 
or downstairs to the basement for whatever reason or up to the second floor for their bathroom and bedroom. So that's really important. The most common place for people to fall is in sort of mm-hmm. tight spaces like in the bathroom where there's lots of hard services. And, and so if, if you have some trouble with stability, it's important that you have, you know, grab bars, things to hang on, getting in and out of the tub or the shower, because that's really, really common place for these injuries to occur. And I suspect if, if someone has had an injury in the past, it would be a good idea to visit with someone like you or your colleagues to talk about things that they can do to prevent a fall in the future. Indeed. Our, our practice um, has many clinicians that are associated with it, physicians, of course, but also therapists and neuropsychologists, and really to get a comprehensive view of what their environment is, what risks exist, and really take a close look at all their medicines and you know their level of impairment, how steady they are in their feet, and sometimes even go into the home. We don't have a lot of time to talk about it, but I bet if you're a kid in a contact sport, you make sure that you wear a helmet. A helmet is very important. Helmets actually might not necessarily prevent a traumatic brain injury because if you get hit, regardless of if you have a helmet, there is still some risk associated with this. So of equal importance, in my view, is the technique that you learn to play sports, how to, if it's a check, how you're going to actually do that properly to minimize injury to you or someone else, or how to take a check and how to keep your head up. Um, and in the rule changes in, in sports to make certain that, you know, risky techniques uh, for checking and, and blocking and tackling and things like that are essentially eliminated over time. Thank you so much, Dr. Brown, for joining us to talk about traumatic brain injury. Again, Dr. Alan Brown is a specialist in physical medicine and rehabilitation at Mayo Clinic. Thanks, Dr. Brown. Thank you. Coming up, we'll discuss palliative care with Dr. Jacob Strand. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Schott. And I'm Tracy McCrae. You know, mention the words palliative care, and many of us think of end of life. And while palliative care is often given to people when medical treatment is no longer considered appropriate, palliative care is a lot more than just giving care near the end of life. Here to talk about the latest advances in palliative care is Dr. Jacob Strand. He's a specialist in general internal medicine and a palliative care expert at Mayo Clinic. <laughs> welcome to the program, Dr. Strand. Oh, thanks so much. Well, I should to be here. Yeah, I should say welcome back to the program. <laughs> that's right. That's Good to right. see you again. Well, explain to our, our listeners that maybe think that palliative care just means is the same as hospice care, yeah. the difference between the two. Sure. I, I think one of the things that often comes up is this idea of uh, different forms of care for patients at different times. Times in their life, and one of the things we we often try to emphasize when we talk about palliative care is that it's not a choice you have to make to choose between one treatment or no treatment. Really, palliative care is an ongoing set of treatments and and supports that uh, goes along with a patient with any serious illness, be that cancer or heart failure, Alzheimer's or other illness that's significantly impacting their life. The goal of palliative care is really, the way I tell patients, is to wear three main hats. And the first thing is expertise in complex symptom management, be that pain, nausea, shortness of breath, or other things that is impacting someone's quality of life and not helping them live as well as they would like to during that uh, either treatment or illness. The the other part is not just the medical aspect, the symptom aspect, but supporting someone uh, either psychologically or spiritually. We have a, a large interdisciplinary team from physicians to nurses, chaplains, and social workers really that help us provide that holistic portion of care to folks. 
The third part is is really thinking about advanced care planning. So, you know, we are always hoping for the best, but we're always making plans to do uh, to really figure out how to care for that person in all different settings, even if things don't go as well as we hoped. So, where does this fit on the spectrum? You, would you go from medical care to palliative care to hospice? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, oftentimes what we're finding in in the really the explosion of research in the last five years is that. Palliative care, or at least subspecialty palliative care, is best introduced concurrently very early on in someone with a serious illness. Most of that research takes place in patients with cancer or heart failure, but really it's been extended into other disease states as well. In our clinic right now, we have an outpatient palliative care practice here at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, and we see patients, uh, some who have just been diagnosed with lung cancer, for example. They have yet to receive any chemotherapy, and, and our job is to help them along that way and help the oncologist give them the best care possible along that path when we don't know how long they might live. That might mm-hmm. be years. They might be cured of their disease. I visited with a patient uh, a couple of days ago who had had head and neck cancer, who had actually been cured of their cancer. My job during uh, that person's treatment was to really help them with their symptoms, and I got to have the pleasure of saying, you don't need to come see me anymore because you're cured and you're feeling great, and, and that person hopefully has a, a nice long life left ahead of them. So I think what's been interesting about palliative care is just the number of different areas where that can be introduced, certainly not just on a continuum of medical treatments, palliative care, end of life, but really uh, ongoing and concurrently with other uh, treatments that might be aimed at someone's disease. So how do you identify yeah. the, these patients? Uh, most commonly, we're a consulting service. So we have uh, groups that uh, ask us to help see their patients, uh, again, at uh, different stages of those, of those illnesses. Uh, we see patients both on the inpatient service and in the outpatient clinic. In the inpatient service here at uh, Rochester Methodist Hospital and St. Mary's Hospital and a number of other hospitals in the Mayo Clinic Health System, uh, we're asked by internal medicine uh, physicians, cardiologists, uh, oncologists to see their patients who might have a particular symptom, something that's really impacting their quality of life and not helping them live as well as they can as they go through these treatments. So we might be asked to deal with someone's pain as they're going through treatment for cancer or shortness of breath as they're getting treated for their heart failure. So they, these patients are referred, referred to you in. from other physicians. That's right. Yep. So it's not something that's in really chronic or a long-term. It's just something that is temporarily or, you know, long-term affecting their quality That's of right. life. That's right. How do kids fit into this? Yeah, it's a great question. So palliative care for pediatrics is a, a fairly unique subspecialty of a sure. subspecialty. Um, we're fortunate at the Mayo Clinic here in Rochester and the, and the uh, Children's Hospital to have a wonderful team of uh, pediatric palliative care clinicians with expertise in general pediatrics to critical care who also provide uh, support and expertise in symptom management and also supporting uh, children and their families right. when they're dealing with a serious illness. Um, and, and they're a great group to get to know, and, and they've been growing as well. Sure. So there's not just palliative care specialists. There's pediatric palliative That's care right. specialists. That's right. And how did you get interested in this? this yeah. Field? So when I was uh, in, in uh, training as an internal medicine resident, one of the things that I, that I noticed that I really liked to do was uh, talk to folks who were facing a serious illness and, and get to know them and find out what they were dealing with, um, both on a personal level as well as the medical level. And as I got involved in doing that, I saw a lot of patients who had their symptoms that weren't managed as well as we thought they could have been. And I realized that my training really hadn't prepared me at that point to be an expert in symptom management. And so I got involved with the palliative care uh, service at the hospital where I trained to, to really be much more of an expert in that area. 
what's been fun about this is to work with people who maybe they're not going to be subspecialists in palliative medicine, but really to, to really think about ways to expand primary palliative care skills to all clinicians, because mm-hmm. I think we all could do a better job at managing pain, at dealing with depression, and to focusing on someone's quality of life as we work on treating sure. their underlying disease. You mentioned pediatric palliative care. What about palliative care for patients who have some sorts of dementia or Alzheimer's disease or memory issues? Yeah, so this is a, a really a growing area um, as the number of patients with memory issues, cognitive impairment, and dementia from different uh, causes are really growing in this country. Um, what we're finding is a couple of things. Number one, as I mentioned, really all of, uh, all treating clinicians need to have some basic palliative care skills, and that is beyond just treating symptoms, but also really uh, doing a better job at talking to patients about their goals and how all the things that we do in medicine are helping support those goals. Uh, I think what we've gotten into in the past is that this menu approach of here's all the things we can do, what do you want us to do? And often what patients are telling us is that they need some advice going forward about how those different options might help them meet certain goals or not meet certain goals. And so I think that's the first part is that all, all clinicians who are treating patients with uh, with dementia and other memory issues need to have some, some improved communication skills and, and basics in treating uh, patients with those issues, um, really in having those discussions about how do we hope for the best now but also plan for what might come in the future. As a subspecialty palliative care clinician, one of the things that we focus a lot on are um, decisions around transition points. So, you know, when mom or dad can't live at home anymore or when they're struggling at the nursing home, uh, what services can we help provide or can we help them access to provide them with more care? And when they're faced with other decisions of, you know, do they want to undergo that surgery? Uh, Would they have wanted to have this treatment? Really thinking about what that person could say if they were still able to speak to us, because at some points in those dementing illnesses, they're not able to tell us what they Mm -hmm. would want. And so helping family members really feel like they're letting their loved ones speak through them uh, can be a a challenging but very rewarding aspect of the care we provide. Would you say that you are managing or helping the families as much as the patient often? Yeah, I think that's a a key point. You know, we really, uh, when I introduce myself to patients, I say my job is to help you have a good quality of life and support you and your family. Uh, We know certainly um, so many family members are affected by patients with serious illnesses. And we also know that family members who survive patients who pass on can really uh, suffer themselves for other medical complications when they see a loved one die in the hospital or die in the ICU. And so our job is really to help prepare them if that if that's happening and to support them both during and after that illness. For the patients with dementia, do you wish and do you hope, I'm sure you do, that there's going to be some medication to help these people at some point? And, and where are we there? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Uh, I think I'll, I'll um, in terms of the medications uh, to help folks, Folks who are going through dementia, I'll leave that to the dementia experts. But I, I, you know, I think what we've found is, um, and what I've been working on with our colleagues in palliative medicine and other primary care clinicians are, what are the medications that maybe not be able to stop the progression of their dementia, but really help provide uh, those patients with a better quality of life as they're going through this illness, uh, and not just the medications, but what other services, whether that's exercise therapy, um, massage therapy, other things that help again support their quality of life in different ways than we might originally think. So palliative care is more about just uh, your quality of life and how whatever circumstance you're going through, medically speaking, mm-hmm. is affecting your quality of life and those of your family. Yeah. And so um, pulling the part of and those of your family in, how much of your time is spent juggling that piece? 
Yeah, it's, uh, you know, we, we really um, think it's important. We want to be able to work with both the patient and also make sure their family members are present during our visits because it allows us to get a sense of what they're going through as well. So it's not just the supports we might be able to pull in for the patient, but also the patient's loved one, especially when those loved ones are doing a lot of the caregiving themselves. And certainly speaking to the um, the issue of folks with Alzheimer's or other dementing illnesses, that's something where they're doing a lot of the caregiving. And they're, it's a stressful it's a stressful situation, and, and um, they love doing it in many ways, but they need help. And so it is certainly a lot of juggling out trying to provide them with services as well. I suspect that most families are very grateful for what you do. <laughs> well, it's certainly the, uh, the most valuable part of my job when we're able to be there as a system of support. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Strand, for bringing us up to date on the latest of palliative care. Thanks thank so much. You. Thanks, Dr. Strand. That's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Do you have a question about health and medicine from one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our senior producer is Rich Dietman, our social media editor, Audrey Castletime. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.